When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, happy Friday. My name is Andreas Steno from Real Vision, and I want to bid you welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Today, we are going to ask the question whether it is too early to signal a pivot, especially in light of the non-farm payrolls we report, uh, report we received earlier today. But before we get to the show, I just have a quick word from our CEO, Raul. Until Sunday, you get a free... Uh, 30-day trial for Real Vision Essential, and you can find the URL uh, in the description below on YouTube and uh, in the description below on the podcast app that you're using. Uh, it's a free trial for our Real Vision Essential until Sunday, so go make use of that. But I um, I want to welcome my guest for the next 30 minutes, uh, a great guy, uh, which I've known for a while. Um, so uh, welcome to the show, Jim Carson, the managing partner and CIO of K Volatility Advisors. Thanks for having me, Andreas. Wonderful to be here. Is it too early to signal a pivot? I obviously uh, referred to Jay Powell's speech earlier this week. So uh, let's take uh, uh, that question first. Is it too early to pivot, Jim? That's a more complicated uh, question than, than uh, is it early or late. Um, the reality is, in my view, uh, the Fed can only control cyclical inflation, right? They're actually by um, lowering, you know, by increasing uh, interest rates, they're actually uh, in many ways exacerbating structural long-term inflation. We've talked about this before, but, uh, you know, low interest rates drove uh, the disinflation we've seen for the last 40 years. Um, and increasing interest rates structurally, structurally will do the opposite. It will actually exacerbate inflation. Um, so what the Fed's doing is really not a, uh, battling structural inflation. It's exacerbating it. In the short term, it is, of course, slowing uh, demand, um, and it is having cyclical effects. So um, you know, my view is that this prescription um, of, of the Fed slowing the economy to battle inflation is the wrong medicine uh, for for the what we're battling, which is a structurally uh, secularly inflationary period. Um, during the 60s and 70s, which is the last time we saw this, we had four um, you know major recessions, right? Much more frequent than the the current uh, pace of recessions and slowdowns. Um, and yet we saw higher and higher inflation structurally. So I think the question broadly that people are asking, uh, you know, oh, are we cyclically uh, battling inflation hard enough to stop it in its tracks is the wrong question. Yes, we can slow it in the short term um, by by doing that. And is the Fed uh, by, uh, you know, piv pausing or pivoting now going to achieve that cyclical uh, slowdown in inflation that it achieves, you know, that it wants to achieve a two, three percent? No, it's not. But but that that is not the goal. The goal is really to slow longer secular inflation here. And I think um, if that's what we're talking about, um, ultimately, uh, it, you know, the Fed might be doing the right thing. Um, they might actually, uh, you know, a pause might be the right prescriptive policy. 
um, and actually, you know, maybe a more balanced approach, maybe not trying to be Volcker is the right answer now. Uh, I know that's uh, unconventional, but but that's how I, I tend to view these things. It is indeed unconventional, but uh, I wanted to get your take on the link between the labor market and your secular inflation thesis. We obviously had the um, important monthly job report out in the US, 263,000 jobs added in the non-farm payrolls report today. Um, is a lack of supply of labor an important part of your equation when you look at secular inflation trends or what's the main driver here? Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a huge driver uh, of the secular core trends of what's has this inflation going in the first place, right? So, um, at the core, uh, when you ask what is driving this inflation to begin with, um, it, to, for me, it starts and ends with populism. It starts and ends with a a demographic uh, change uh, that's happening uh, on top of a a millennial generation on down that doesn't. That, uh, that's at 40% of the household formation and wealth formation of baby boomers at this time in their lives. Um, that's driven a, a, you know, that generation was the labor class. So, you know, the, when I talk about populism and class warfare, it really is, you know, that populist group is the younger generation. That's always the case because they don't have the wealth creation and they haven't benefited from the boom in investment markets over this period. Um, they've been left behind. So that populism that's been, been driving drove ultimately this fiscal policy that we've seen. It will continue to drive fiscal responses to slowdowns. And again, ironically, by uh, causing a deep recession, ultimately the response of policymakers will be uh, more fiscal policy, probably more geared towards uh, the inflationary effects as opposed to just point blank checks, uh, price controls, uh, you know, first-time homebuyer tax credits, uh, gas uh, tax holidays, right? These are all things we're already starting to see that we'll see more of um, the worse a recession gets, and that will ultimately drive more secular um, inflation. So, so, so yes, as we do that, we also get protectionism. We get nationalism. We get uh, more, uh, you know, scarcity of resources um, and breakdowns between uh, the globalization we've seen over the last 40 years, which to a great extent was driven, again, by corporates, right, who are getting all the money, all the investment capital, spanning across borders and ultimately trying to, I mean, you've heard this before, labor, uh, you know, the best way to create peace is is through trade, right, is through um, crossing borders. And, and when you have monetary policy, which is supply side, lots of investment, money flows to corporations, and they will, they're profit maximizing, and they don't care about borders as much. They will find the um, you know the, the cheapest way and that's deflationary so we're unwinding globalization that should continue and that ultimately is going to cause more on uh you know um, bringing industry back to the us back to europe back to other places uh slowing down of globalization uh, more labor rights as a function as well um from multiple different ways and more leverage to labor as a result um so so my view is that uh, labor could do very well into a, uh, you know, relatively uh, into a slowdown in the economy uh, and, and other other things could slow down much more than demand ultimately will. So, you know, that will ultimately drive a more stagflationary environment. Again, I, I want to reiterate, let's go look at the 60s and 70s again. That first recession uh, when, uh, you know, when, when William McChesney Martin uh, increased uh, the Fed funds rate from 3% all the way up to 8%. Uh, mind you, um, and it took real rates uh, positive again, caused a very shallow recession um, that ultimately when when the you know when the Fed paused, 
uh, drove, uh, you know, a, a much more inflationary period. Um, they were able to slow inflation cyclically a little bit, but ultimately drove much more inflation afterwards as a result because there was more and more fiscal policy that came out of that recession. I, I would expect that something along those lines to be what we're looking at here. And again, real GDP growth was, was quite strong despite that, that, that small recession in that period. And that's my, my broad kind of thought on, on labor where it's at. I think it will be continue to be stickier than people expect. Yes, it will cyclically slow. Um, but but I think the uh, the policy response to that slowing is ultimately way more dangerous than than the actual speed of growth at this point. When we talk about the uh, 1970s, I want to bring up a topic from that period in time, namely the so-called wage to price spiral. Uh, that was something that was invented as a theme throughout the 1970s, in, in particular in Northern Europe, but also elsewhere on the globe. Mm -hmm. uh, so what are the risks of such a waged price spiral unfolding over the next decade. Yeah, so obviously from the very beginning, and, and the Fed has been very vocal about this, you know, the first thing on people's mind is, is this wage price spiral, um, you know, the idea that the more people uh, spend, um, the higher prices go, uh, the more hiring kind of happens, uh, and, and into that we go, not to mention the more importantly, long-term expectations of inflation get started. Right, the more demand gets pulled forward, um, you know, and 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 that ultimately, you know, drives more and more short-term um, kind of inflationary push. Um, in my view, the Fed has been trying with narrative tools; uh, they're very, very best for some time. It's that's why the transitory theme came out. I, you know, my my broad theory is that the Fed never thought this was transitory. They were trying to convince the market that it was transitory, because if they could convince the market that trans it was transitory, at least enough, they could slow it in its tracks and. Ultimately, that didn't work, but that's still the broad approach. They don't want long-term inflation expectations to go higher. Um, and uh, the reality is they have little to no power to control that in the long term. They can control that in the short term, in my view, but that, uh, that the structural uh, inflationary pressures will ultimately be very, very sticky, and ultimately the market will be forced you know, to raise those long-term inflationary expectations, which will, unfortunately, uh, bring demand forward. It will build inventories. It will cause people to borrow at low interest rates, uh, negative interest rates to ultimately buy anything pinned down. And all those things ultimately exacerbate um, uh, inflation. Uh, and, and I think we'll see more and more of that across the commodity space in particular as we go forward. Um, but yes, the wage price spiral will, will prove uh, uh, inordinately sticky uh, it's it's very hard to uh, these are bigger thematic issues than than money supply and cyclical downturns. These are major structural demographic and structural issues. Gini coefficients got to 0.42 here in the U.S. up from 0.3 just 20 years ago. Um, those things are things that uh, happen over 40 years. You cannot reverse them just with cyclical issues. Uh, like I said, uh, you know, you're at 40% of the wealth creation by this generation, and they're growing to political dominance. So this is a political problem, um, and it's not something the Fed can fix overnight. Uh, we are kind of this is a bit of kabuki theater, if you ask me. But uh, that's what the Fed wants you wants you to believe that they can control it uh, because they are trying to use those you know that you know, those narrative tools to help uh, manage it in the interim. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I know, Jem, that you've done some work with your team on asset allocation into a potential secular inflationary environment. Um, and I would like to start with bonds, because we've actually seen bond yields retracing a little bit recently due to the uh, sort of lack of hawkish rhetoric from the Federal Reserve. But if we look at bonds in a historical perspective in inflationary environments, what's your take on, let's say, the five to 10 year outlook if you're right on your inflation thesis? Yeah, I mean, the, the bonds is, you know, that, that argument is the easiest one, right? We can, yeah. we can take, start there and, and work our way across the other asset classes, but duration's a killer, right? Mm. We've already seen that this year. Um, it, now, does that mean you shouldn't be, uh, you know, in short-term bonds when equities continue to get to a point or when risk assets, assets rally back? No, I mean, right, you want to take your yield, particularly, or, uh, you know, to the extent it's, uh, you can get those yields uh, a little bit higher. But um, but yeah, duration is a killer. You want to avoid it at all costs. And, and uh, to answer your question more directly, uh, uh, bonds are not going to be a hedge to equities, right? Uh, the higher the higher yields go, the more they will be become you know uh, and, a, and a major risk off. They will be, but uh, for the most part, um, you know I would expect continued volatility there. Um, uh, you know, as we go to higher, you know, more increased uh, recessions and confusion between cyclical and secular pressures, but ultimately, again, that secular trend, which you really got to divide these in your mind, uh, will ultimately hurt you more and more over time. So I think it's uh, you're swimming uphill, you know, you're uh, you're uh, against the uh, you know against the flow, I guess, uh, upstream and. Uh, and that's something you're going to want to avoid. Uh, and 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 again, even though it might in the short term provide some type of a hedge, the higher yields go, it's it's really not what you're looking for in order to provide the, uh, the hedge you need. And that's what we saw in the 60s and 70s as well, or as, uh, any other inflationary period. Being long the good old 60-40 portfolio uh, stocks relative to bonds or a so-called risk parity strategy this year has sort of felt like peeing against the wind all year, right? Um, but one of the things that um, is very interesting to note throughout this year is that the correlation breakdown between the two asset classes has been quite remarkable, probably as a consequence of inflation, right? Um, so what does history tell us about correlation between stocks and bonds in an inflationary environment. Yeah, that's a that's a great topic here. So there's two drivers of the relationship. One, there's the first order effects of inflation. And that's pretty simple, right? The inflation at the end of the day makes assets, all assets, stocks, commodities, real estate, uh, they make um, in nominal terms makes them cheaper every year. So there should be some first order if, if inflation is 10% and asset all things you know held equal, the assets should uh, go up 10%, right? But but that that effect is way weaker and, and has much less of an actual effect, even though that's how most people think. Uh, on the actual uh, drivers of supply and demand um, than, than the second order effects. And the second order effects are much more significant and much more important ultimately to outcomes um, of equities. Um, so, uh, you know, what are those five kind of second order effects? One, quite simply, interest rates go up, uh, the value, the, the amount of money available decreases. 
right? The uh, money's more expensive. It's harder to get a hold of. There's less money for investment. So all investment, not just stocks, bonds, uh, commodities, uh, everything uh, decreases in investment. Then you have the simple reverse Tina effect, right? We've talked about Tina effect forever, uh, but now all of a sudden nobody's talking about the reverse Tina, right? There is no, there is no uh, alternative was the theme that drove risk assets. Uh, now we are seeing an alternative. And that drives money out of equities as well, which is a major driver of, of uh, reduction in demand for equities. Uh, margin compression is a general theme during inflationary times. Yes, GDP growth remains strong and above trend, which we talked about during the 60s and 70s. But margin compression hurts earnings. Um, and that's, uh, that's driven by a lot of different factors. But input costs, uh, obviously, is a, is a major, major part of that. Fourth uh, of all, uh, higher risk premium. You have less liquidity during these times. Less liquidity means there's less people that can absorb trades and there's more short-term volatility. I want to emphasize short-term. We'll get to kind of long-term here in a second as well. But that risk premium means investing in riskier assets like equities ultimately has a higher bar. Your risk return looks worse and you're less likely to drive demand into those products. And then lastly, you have a fifth kind of second order, which is a very, the one most people think about because people think fundamentals is the discount rate, obviously, on long-term you know, discounted cash flows, um, you know, drives values down in, in terms of an investment thesis as well. So these are all five major, major effects of higher interest rates and higher inflation. Um, and they drive dramatically less demand, and you see multiple contraction as a result during inflationary times. So, um, you know, it, when you see uh, inflation, you know, inflationary times, you see equity contraction. Um, now, ironically, these first and second order effects are, in, are battling, and as you go over longer periods of time, what, what happens is markets go sideways to down, right? Um, during these periods, and you get significant multiple contraction to a point where there's essentially a put on the biz, uh, on on the market, right? Um, and that put on the market is is driven by better and better valuations, and so you actually ironically see over longer time periods a dramatic reduction in volatility of markets on longer time frames. Uh, the upside trend and the upside volatility that you uh, that we usually experience on real on a realized basis is taken off the table. And ultimately, a put is put under the uh, under the market um, via these valuations, and ultimately that drives almost a wedge over time on valuations and really reduces long-term volatility of equities. So, kind of a different thought process than most people take, but that's the way you know what you would expect now for equities in the next decade if we have a secularly inflationary period is, is kind of a slow death uh, to markets, uh, really, really uh, you know higher risk premium and uh, cheaper valuations. A generally strong economy that drives better cash flows from equities, but much poorer multiples. And and the and the takeaway there is in equities, what you want to do over time as we continue to go through this, if, if we truly are going to go through this, as I believe, um, is you want to invest in the economy. You mm. just don't want to invest in the market. And those are two very different things. And people often get those, get those two things very confused. Yeah, that's a that's a very fair point. And I wanted to add a, a bit of anecdotal evidence to your point on discounted cash flows in an environment that we've just been in. Um, I was part of management in a European private equity uh, fund throughout 2020 and 2021. And I can guarantee you the first thing that we did was to brainwash right about every new analyst with the discounted ca cash flow model. And at the time, you had a discount rate at zero basically throughout the curve, which means that you can buy everything at any right. price. Um, there is no cap 
to the price that makes yep. sense given a discounted cash flow model with a zero percent um, discount rate. <laughs> but um, and never mind. We are probably um, we probably have such a scenario behind us at least if if you're right. Um, I wanted to play a soundbite for you uh, from a discussion I had with Whitney Baker, uh, one of the best emerging market strategists I know. Um, the interview aired earlier today on the Real Vision platform, and she talks about the risk of this recession not being enough to kill inflation and also the ramifications for U.S. assets relative to the rest of the world. So let's let's listen to Whitney and get back to that discussion. You actually have to squeeze people in order to bring inflation down. People are very reluctant to voluntarily uh, cut their spending and their real standards of living unless, you know, they lose their job, in which case there's yeah, their incomes go down for one thing, but also they're, they sort of precautionarily cut their spending in advance of that. So if we saw like a huge weakening in the labor market, you would start to see that translate much more to lower income and spending power, but also lower willingness to spend, probably less willingness to draw down all of the excess savings that folks built up and haven't spent yet, that sort of thing, less willingness to keep spending on credit cards and that sort of stuff. Right. So you need to see something like that, like some real weakening in this crazy hot labor market, crazy hot excess consumption relative to, you know, available supply. And those imbalances have never been anything like this extreme. Like the way that we've we've calc this is you need something like a recession and a half on average. We take the average recessions for 50 years. You need like a recession and a half just to get the labor supply demand and the consumption supply demand back to something that's almost a previous cyclical peak. Like it's almost in line with the peak of the dot-com cycle if we had a recession and a half from here. So that is how hot these economies actually are. The entire interview with Whitney Baker is already available for subscribers to the Real Vision platform. And remember, we have a free trial until Sunday. Uh, so go ahead and check it out. It's a mind-blowing interview. I wanted to get back to you on uh, this exact topic of secular inflation and what happens to the U.S. equity market relative to the rest of the world if inflation is stickier than expected. Um, Whitney's point is basically that the U.S. is very driven by this technology sector, uh, a sector with um, extreme multiples relative to other sectors currently, and therefore a sticky inflation environment could prove to be sort of the catalyst for an end to the almost 10-year-long, maybe 15-year-long U.S. outperformance of the rest of the world in equity space. What do you make of that discussion? Um, I would argue that uh, that actually dollar strength, um, which we tend to see in inflationary periods, and we've seen recently, right, uh, in secular inflationary periods, uh, tend, will actually help to export inflation and drive uh, currency and, and dollars, you know, more to uh, U.S. markets. And that's what we've seen so far. That's the kind of the contrary argument. Obviously, um, this is not a one-way train. Uh, I don't think, uh, obviously, valuations, as you mentioned, are already pretty uh, pretty wide wide between those entities. So there's likely to be some mean reversion throughout the period as well. Um, but broadly, there are uh, structurally positive trends that will allow the Federal Reserve and the US government to export some of the issues that it's had 
um, given the exorbitant privilege of the U.S. dollar. And so as, I think as long as you believe the U.S. dollar uh, will continue to be the reserve currency and we will continue to have that exorbitant privilege, policymakers uh, this side of the pond uh, will leverage that. It's not fair. It's not how you know we can argue whether it should be or shouldn't be. But uh, you know we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about you know the the power and and strength uh, during a time of uh, inflation. We are generally during a time of uh, resource scarcity. Uh, competitive. We, we're moving from a, uh, a cooperation landscape to a competitive landscape. And so if you have a lot of commodities, you have leverage. If you have another commodity called the reserve currency, you have leverage. If you have labor and other resources, you have leverage. And, and, and entities that are more powerful and have more leverage have better outcomes during inflationary periods. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I wanted to get back to this discussion on cross asset allocations through a period of inflation. Um, We've talked about bonds, we've talked about equities, um, commodities also, but what about real estate? I think I've heard over and over that real estate is the perfect inflation hedge long term. And we just saw yesterday that Blackstone had to curb withdrawals basically from uh, one of its uh, real estate investment trusts um, as they basically cannot meet the demand to opt out of the real estate product due to illiquidity in the assets um, currently, right? Probably a cyclical thing, but what do you make of both the cyclical outlook for real estate and the secular outlook for real estate in an inflationary environment? Yeah, so uh, there are certain parts, certain uh, areas where you can make broad sweeping arguments, um, uh, you know, commodities, you know, uh, uh, you know, bonds, et cetera. You know, you can make some sweeping ar- arguments with, in inflationary periods. I think real estate's a little different. Uh, real estate is not a monolith um, as far as I see it. You know, commercial real estate is very different. Uh, then let's say, uh, you know, in, in higher end residential is very different than a lower end, um, uh, you know, starter homes uh, and, and where you were located also matters. Um, you know, my view, uh, obviously, is that, uh, you know, as we talked about, is that we're going to continue to see a, a, you know, labor rights, more uh, demand push economy, not a supply push economy like we've had. And, and demand push economy means more demand and particularly for durable goods and, and real estate type products. But that's going to come particularly from a millennial generation on down who is at 40% again of the wealth creation is going to drive not only as a demographic bubble entering their prime homeownership years, but their household formation is, is very low. So those are, those are, that's a wave coming. That is like, it's unavoidable. These, you know, these, they're not going to continue to live at home. Um, you know, uh, you know, these people, need to buy homes and and to the extent they can't afford it right um, which is obviously the issue here as rates go up um, government will help they'll be forced to help it's not it's uh you know it's if it's politically popular if the the prime demographic uh, group that's going to be voting uh wants it it's going to happen and it's going to be the first thing to happen so i've been calling for it for a bit but you know expect first-time home buyer tax credits here in the u.s expect it globally i think you're you're going to start to see those types of policies be very popular on both sides um, and that'll drive us uh, 
you know, strong demand for uh, for starter homes, and, and and especially given the supply and demand dynamics, which we already know are bad, um, as well as uh, you know uh, higher rates, which make it harder to develop real estate. Right, are going to it's going to make it um, you know a, a very good place to invest. Um, that said, commercial real estate, right? We have other trends at, at work there, in particular, work from home. Uh, you know, a demographic uh, growth again, that demographic that is gaining more and more political power. Once more political right, more, once more work from home policies, they want more labor rights. Uh, that will drive less office space. Um, you know, again, I think we already talked about equities and the headwinds they face in terms of capital. I think you're likely to continue to see, um, you know, uh, bad trends for uh, for corporate um you know in, in terms of, of office space so i would avoid commercial um and then obviously even within the real estate and like who, who's locked up 30-year paper right that's pretty powerful if you if you're in if you're investing in uh, real estate you're not just investing in the asset itself you're investing in the underlying um you know financing and the financing itself if it's properly locked up can be incredibly powerful it's a way to invest in that in, in that bond uh, you know theme that i've been talking about uh, the opposite way so there are ways to to bet on real estate that I think could be incredibly profitable during this inflationary period, but you can also get yourself in a lot of trouble just blindly investing in every REIT. Being an employer of um, a couple of handfuls of um, of young people uh, below 30 years of age, I can guarantee you that it's getting increasingly tricky to get anyone to show up. So <laughs> I perfectly a, agree with you. It's a real thing. It's not just yeah. employment, right? Everybody's looking at employment, but the amount of hours put in on this, you know, on the same boat, right? I own a small business. Uh, you know, it, it, people want to work remotely. They want to work less hours. Uh, there's less less productivity as a result. But that's that's also not a bad thing, right? That's uh, you know, maybe the, the pendulum swung too far. Um, I, I, you know, again, I'm not passing judgment, but that is a trend, and 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 the realities are that that comes with a cost, uh, not just to, uh, you know, decrease margins for corporations, but it also means, uh, you know, uh, certain things that we've seen over the last 20, 30 years, which aren't uh, don't embody that trend, are going to reverse. Uh, Jim, we have a couple of questions coming in um, in relation to commodities in such an inflationary environment. We haven't really touched upon a couple of the shiny ones, uh, namely silver and gold. Uh, so what do you make of the price action that we see right now and also sort of the more secular outlook for silver and gold in this type of environment that you depict? Yeah, so I think most people know me. I'm not... Uh... I haven't historically been a gold bug or, you know, sitting out there saying you need to own gold or silver. Um, this will be the second conversation I've had in the last couple of weeks where uh, I'm here to tell you that that gold and silver um, are some of the best long term duration trades you can make in order to hedge inflation, given what the action we've seen in markets uh, and particularly uh, long dated calls in those products. Um, given how underperforming volatility in those products has been uh, relative to other asset classes. So, um, you know, a pretty direct uh, comment there. Uh, we've seen the reverse happen in gold and silver. Uh, that when you, what you would expect during the last year of inflation, inflation a little bit lately, we've seen an upturn. Uh, I think this is the perfect time to, to pile into that on a, on a more long-term basis. Again, I'm not talking about the next week, the next month, the next year per se, but I think this is a great entry point given where ball is in that product as well as where the asset class itself sits. Um, we see volatility in gold and silver during uh, inflationary periods. It is not a secular trend, much like uh, other commodities. Other commodities see real demand. 
uh, and, and other uh, issues that I've talked about with geopolitical stresses and whatnot that come out of these inflation periods that give it a much uh, more stable secular incline. You see much more volatility in gold and silver. So it's not a surprise that it hasn't performed in a straight line during this early period of inflation, but it, it, it does see over the long run a similar secular increase. So a pretty good entry point and an interesting um, idea there. Uh, you briefly mentioned volatility in uh, in gold and silver, and we get a bunch of questions coming in on on volatility. Um, one of our members called you uh, Gem Volmaster Flex Carson. I think that's a nice nickname for you. But uh, in any case, uh, speaking about VIX levels currently, uh, also in sort of a historical context and into an inflationary environment over the next five ten years, um, VIX seems unusually low. So um, we kind of reference the longer term outlook, right, for volatility, um, you know, in, into an inflationary period, uh, you know, especially in a demand push economy where earnings are still growing or, you know, are hanging in, I guess. Um, and, and uh, you know, inflation itself, uh, first order effects are going to improve valuations over time. Um, that said, uh, what I didn't talk about is equities during a time of inflation do see increased short term volatility. Um, and uh, why is that? Again, you have more recessions, you have more uncertainty, you have more resource scarcity. That resource scarcity also drives, importantly, these other effects, we, which everybody thinks are separate, but wars, geopolitical tensions, um, as well as uh, you know resource uh, scarcity issues like OPEC plus, you know, the OPEC crisis we had in the 70s. Those things are all connected to the inflationary push. A lot of people don't really think about that, as, but they are all clustered around the same kind of uh, issues. Um, so you see more short-term inflation, not to mention dollar strength causes dollar-denominated debt crisis, et cetera. So we are likely to see more events and more uh, short-term activity while still over longer time periods seeing decreased uh, you know, compression of all, but risk premium itself will increase as well. So these are the broad dynamics that I would expect, short-term versus long-term risk premium versus implied versus realized, et cetera. Given that, how do we see the current you know, short-term uh, pricing. Um, you know, the other cyclical effect, which I've been pretty clear about, is these, uh, you know, this first move or second move phenomenon. This happens regardless of inflationary or non-inflationary uh, themes. This is a function of, and you've probably heard me talk about this before, but people crowding into trades and crowding out of trades. It's human nature. Um, you know, we had a crowding into long volatility in the equity space uh, towards the top in the market in January, December. Skew was at the 98th, 99th percentile. The world was hedged. Think of it as the world was 100% allocated to equities, but but had you know kind of 30 delta puts on on their portfolio. Everybody was kind of sticking by the exit and trying to um, you know uh, hold a, maybe a five to ten, a 10% out of the money short term put on their portfolio. Um, the reality is that didn't work very well uh, in, in the sense that the premium was high and everybody was piled into it. The move was slow. Um, and ultimately, uh, you know, everybody had that. So the implied volatility response was not only uh, slow, but but negative, right? Everybody came in, had to sell and monetize their puts into a decline to hold on to and to hedge to the best of their ability what they had. Um, and eventually that that drove massive underperformance secularly, uh, you know, over the year uh, of realized ball itself because it pinned the market and provided supply to dealers. All of that is, is what happens when people are very well hedged. We've seen this, uh, you know, before the decline in early 2016 after the yuan devaluation. We saw it in late 2018 after the volpocalypse of the XIV implosion. We saw it again, um, you know, and, and recently after the, the Fed March 2020 COVID crash. Everybody piles into hedges after a big event happens. Everybody thinks it's going to be the same, and then it underperforms. Well, just like that happens that way, once people leave 
the hedges, which they have now. We are now in the zeroth percentile for zero equity skew. Um, uh, you know, the exact opposite. Everybody's gotten burned. Uh, liquidation of long volatility funds is in, is happening in real time. Um, and people have abandoned their hedges. So yes, people have uh, investors have diminished their equity allocation from 100 to 70%. Their beta may be the same in the sense that they may have a 0.7 beta, but it's a very different uh, profile, right? To have to have equity exposure at 70% versus 100% in a, you know, 10% out of the money put. At some point you have a hedge that takes you to zero in the in the hedge scenario and the other one you just keep losing money all the way down. So very different profile and likely to to lead to more liquidation and less uh, realized uh, volatility compression, a bigger fat, fat left tail uh, in that environment. So those are cyclical factors that we see happen again and again throughout history. We're heading towards the more dangerous part, you know, the deep end in that in that piece. Um, but again, within the context of um, you know, and, and, and while there's still also short-term possibilities for crises and macro things that are more likely, but in the context of it of a dying low vol eventual uh, place uh, where we where we end. So how, that's a pretty, you know, dynamic way to describe it. I know, but like, uh, there's a lot of factors. It's complicated. I know everybody wants a simple answer. So yeah. You made a good job out of that uh, question, <laughs> Jim. Uh, I have to admit that. Um, let's try and summarize today's discussion because it's been uh, a clear eye opener to me, and it's been a pleasure to uh, allow you to elaborate on your thesis on inflation because I think it's important to distinguish between time horizons here, and that's one of been your one been one of your clear messages today that inflation may lead to short term volatility, but it's actually um, long term, not necessarily adding to the uh, to the. Uh, um, volatility picture. Uh, and if we look at the consequences for asset allocation, the straightforward conclusion on bonds is to stay away from them in a secular inflation trend. Uh, equities will probably start trading at lower multiples as a consequence of uh, rising inflation over time. Uh, and if we look at commodities, uh, gold and silver work as decent long-term hedges against the inflation, probably with a bit of volatility around the trend, while commodities will stay in um, in short supply through such a period. You need to invest in the economy, not the market, to quote you. you Jim Carson, um, great to host you on this Friday afternoon, and thank you for joining us before Bureau Clock here. Um, so uh, <laughs> I hope to see you back on the show again soon. Yeah, we'll be pre-gaming U.S. Holland coming up, uh, you know, just another kind of 12 to 14 hours. So, uh, no, we'll... We'll touch base again. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure, Andres. It was a great pleasure to host you once again on the show, and we hope to see you back again soon. Um, otherwise, I uh, just want to wish you all a, a great weekend, and uh, my team and I will be back with Real Vision Daily Briefing again on Monday. See you there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, Head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.